0: A person certainly doesn't have to venture very deeply into the family tree of anyone from Council Bluffs and Omaha to find railroad workers, and lots of them. I mean, we had many in my family. They worked for different railroads, but they all had one thing in common. They were all men. So it seems a rather straightforward conclusion that the railroads built Council Bluffs, Omaha, and pretty much the entire West, for that matter, and it was men that built those railroads. But author Chris Entz says that's not the full story.
1: Women made an impact in so many respects to the trains. They contributed not because they were women, but just because they were human beings with great ideas.
0: Okay, so women were involved in railroading. But Union Pacific Museum curator Patricia Labounty explains it wasn't always smooth going.
2: Bonnie Leet was the first female locomotive engineer for Union Pacific. Her paycheck was so good, banks would not cash it for her because they didn't believe a woman would be earning this type of pay. Well, it kind of looks like
0: there's a lot more to the railroad story than most of us know. So let's learn more about it. Women and the railroad. That's our topic today on Accidentally Historic. back, back. back. Step into our time machine. Real stories of real people. Some good, some bad, some very strange. And all accidentally historic. There's a lot more to a successful railroad than steel rails and flanged wheels. And women have played a huge part in the story of trains, from ways to make them safer to robbing them, and uh, just about everything in between. Hi, I'm Richard Warner, your host, and today we have a pair of expert guests that will share their knowledge with us. Chris Ants has done extensive research on women and railroading for her book entitled Iron Women. Chris is a New York Times bestselling author who's written over 50 books about women of the West. Also with us is Patricia Lebounty. Patricia is curator of the Union Pacific Railroad Museum here in Council Bluffs. Chris, let's start with you. Tell us, how do women fit into the railroad
1: story? The women were instrumental in being able to make sure that people traveled by rail. It is true that the land was surveyed by men, the tracks were laid by men, but women made train travel aesthetically pleasing. The trains were done by men, but... If it were up to them, they just would have had a couple of buckets and a two-by-four that everybody sat on to get from point A to point B, you know? And there wouldn't have been any fineries on the train which made it attractive for people to go aboard. They also created a number of inventions that, you know, helped make the rail system work better. They patented railroad crossing guards, that mechanism that makes those arms go up and down. That was from a woman. Women were some of the very first telegraphers. A woman helped invent special feeding trough for transporting the cattle from one part of the country to the next, a particular kind of contraption that would allow you to make sure that your cattle are fed and watered when you're trying to get them from point A to point B so they arrive healthy. Women are the ones that invented the special lighting that goes above seats, better seating for vehicles. They designed special ventilators that would keep the air recirculating throughout the cars. They invented systems that would cut down on the emissions from the coal into the air that was turning everything black. They made an impact in so many respects to the trains. They contributed not because they were women, but just because they were human beings with great ideas. And they wanted their ideas to be realized. They set out to make things a little bit better, and that's what they did. They worked with the railroad owners to better travel because they were on trains. This is miserable.
2: There's got to be a better way of doing things. When we looked back through the historical record, or what we could find in the historical record, it was interesting that war played an important uh, role as an opportunity for women to break into these careers. So we're all familiar with Rosie the Riveter from World War II, but that was that was actually the third war that women sort of found an entree, as it were, into a traditionally male field. Railroads, just like every other industry, desperately needed workers. Even during the Civil War, railroads needed women to help run railroads during the war um, because men were off fighting. You know, in the Civil War, Elizabeth Cogley was the first woman we could find who was listed officially as a railroad employee. And that was in 1862. And she entered through telegraphy and communication, then uh, after the Civil War, companies like Western Union actually advertised for women uh, to work for them.
0: You mentioned that women were among the first telegraph operators. So why did women gravitate to this area of telegraphy?
1: Because their hands were small, and they could, um, they could work the mechanism a little bit better than men, and they could multitask. That's what was called upon for the people that ran the telegraph uh, machines. Their testing was so rigorous, you were in a room with maybe five or six different telegraph machines, and you had to focus in on the one that was going to be yours that you were in charge of and block out everything else. And they were able to do that. It was an itinerant business, and they were willing to go from place to place to be able to be telegraph operators. It was a very important job, and they took it seriously. It's just an incredible talent and skill. And I admire those people who were able to do that and do it on a fly because you know that's coming in at a very rapid pace. You have to not only take what is being sent to you over the wire from one station to the next, but now you've got to be able to quickly send it on to another location.
2: Uh, We have a collection at our museum from World War II-era telegrapher named Irene Friesen, and she worked in Nebraska during World War II— as a railroad telegrapher. Then she eventually actually went on to become a station agent uh, in Genoa. The interesting thing about Irene, you know, she entered into, this was her wartime service, was to sign up for this really important work with the railroad as a telegrapher. And, you know, the hours, they they were working 15 to 18 hours a day. She talked about having to ice her hand and her arm because of just the strain of using the, the telegraph keys. It was incredibly grueling during wartime. You know, the the movements, uh, I know we talk about, you know, more than 6 million servicemen and women coming through North Platte, Nebraska. So you just imagine the number of trains that was, and then times that by about eight to the freight operations and, you know, telegraphers were working to coordinate all of those movements. And it was interesting, like in her diary, she notes that she actually trained the person who was going to become her husband to be a railroad telegrapher. You know, so women were not only moving into roles and executing them well, then they were taking on supervisory roles and training roles in a relatively short amount of time. But then, you know, in her diary, she says that she was bumped in railroad work. Often it's... um, you know, you you put your name up on the leaderboard and then whoever has seniority takes the next job, right? So when men were coming back to the railroad, they maintained the seniority that they had when they left. So a lot of women were bumped out of regular railroad work when men were returning. In the telegrapher field, clerk field, station agent field, women were definitely kept on much longer. But, you know, any type of irregular work, shop work or uh, line work or, you know, something like that, uh, women rarely were able to keep or hold on until much, much later.
0: So how did the railroads compare with other industries in bringing women into the workforce?
2: I think
1: that they were very progressive. You have the ladies that I mentioned who were inventors, and they were inventors long before, I mean, back in the 1860s. It wasn't like this just happened in the late eighteen eighteen nineties. I mean, these women were contributing to the railroad a long time before was even publicized that they were doing that and so you had to have owners of these railroads stockholders in these railroads who said yes women have ideas that are reasonable that are good and we should listen to them and um, we should not just completely discount them because they are women i always think that if you are a smart businessman you're not you're not judging something based on the business of gender anyway That would be like a scientist saying, I'm only going to uh, work with these particular chemicals because I like them better than any others. Uh, If you were a well-rounded businessman, if you're a well-rounded scientist, you don't look at those things. So I believe that they were quite progressive in what they did, and the women were able to prove themselves. One of the women in the book is Olive Dennis, and she was one of their very first engineers. She was the one who invented better seating. She came up with a better way of, of creating cir- recirculatory air, which at that particular time you got to keep in mind. You know, people were smoking very heavily on board. You know, it's a very confined space. It's not like you can always have the windows down, and that's the only thing that you had. You didn't have any air conditioning or heating or anything like that. So, thank heavens for somebody like Olive Dennis, who comes up with all that she does. And there, and the railroad says, yeah, we want her to do this.
0: A major Council Bluffs employer for decades was the Pacific Fruit Express ice docks. In fact, uh, you can still see remnants of it at 33rd Street and 14th Avenue. It was very labor-intensive. Ice was loaded into special refrigerated boxcars uh, that could accommodate 166 cars on each side of a double set of tracks at one time. Now, from what I read in your book, Chris, this was yet another railroad invention by a woman.
1: Uh, Dr. Mary Pennington, who was a scientist and dealt mostly in spores and fungus and bacteria. And really, it's through her efforts and the invention of that modern-day refrigerator boxcar that we were able to transport produce from one part of our country to the next part of the country
0: the Harvey Houses were a huge player in the railroads of the West. And, of course, a lot of women were involved in that.
1: Women influenced the railroad in so many ways. And one of them was the Harvey Girls. One of my favorite quotes is from Will Rogers, who said that Fred Harvey kept the West in food and wives. Fred Harvey's brainchild, who said, these trains are having to stop at different places, and there's no food on board the train, and people are having to get off, try and find some food and get back on. Sometimes they miss their train. Why don't we come up with a plan where we have some diners at these depots for men to get off and get whatever they're going to get and then get back on, and they would be consistent diners. I mean, I liken it to what McDonald's is today. You can go anywhere. McDonald's is very consistent. You can go from, you know, Cleveland to Chico, California, and the McDonald's are the same. And that was the idea with the Harvey House. So no matter where you were, you felt at home. There were specific things that they served. Milk was always on the uh, agenda there, always on the menu, coffee and milk. So you weren't going in there to get whiskey. So (laughs) that wasn't anything that was going to happen with the Harvey Girls. The women who operated the Harvey Houses were brave enough to sign contracts to come west to be able to work these places, and they had a very detailed code of dress that they had to adhere to. And these women came, a lot of them came hoping to be able to take these jobs, earn money to go to school, or earn money to send back home to their families. Some of them did find the men of their lives and ended up getting married, but that wasn't always their motivating factor. They wanted jobs. They wanted to be able to help further settle the West. And to be able to be a part of the Harvey franchise, he treated his employees well. And it was just a groundbreaking part of history that these women wanted to be affiliated with, and they were happy to sign up. I I love the whole notion that, that at one time – the Harvey Girls were so admired. There was a clothing line. It was the Harvey Girl clothing line. You could get clothes like the Harvey Girls. You could even get your hair styled like the Harvey Girls. It was a job that paid well for them. But they had strict guidelines that they had to adhere to about uh, their off hours as well. These were proper ladies. These were not soiled doves. And so you had to comport yourself as a proper lady even outside of a Harvey House restaurant. I love the role that they played.
0: Chris, if you could go back in time and actually meet one of these women of the Western rails, who would it be?
1: I think that it would be, for me, it would be Miriam Leslie. Miriam Leslie was um, the wife of Frank Leslie, who was the editor of a series of illustrated newspapers of the Old West called Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspapers, and She did more for railroad travel in the 1800s than any other woman, and that was something that the executives and board members of Railroad celebrated her for. She decided she was going to pull together a dozen artists and poets and songwriters and authors. She had special cars made up, and they were going to take a train from New York, to California and back again and stop along the way. It was a five-month journey. And really write about what they see. Artists drew what they saw. She wrote about it. People wrote songs about it and poems about it. And then when she gets back, when at the return of coming from California back to New York, she then writes a book called From Gotham, To the golden gate and it's all about her adventures on train travel and it was such a best-selling book everybody wanted to travel the train and i just think it would be wonderful to have been with miriam leslie during those five months going across the west on this train of course they traveled in style i mean the wagner pullman cars were no were nothing to sneeze at this was not your this was not your average train travel are wonderful luxurious cars to travel in they had parlors some of them even had uh, washrooms so they were they were traveling in style but just to be with that group of people with Miriam Leslie in charge and really setting the precedent for what would be you know travel brochures at that time to be able to set the stage for that I think that that would be wonderful.
0: The very first moving train ever to be robbed left from Council Bluffs Rock Island Depot. Now, the evil perpetrators of that robbery were all men, uh, Jesse James and his gang to be specific. But the idea caught on, and I understand a woman was involved in that evil aspect of railroading as well, right?
1: Laura Bullion was the woman who helped rob the last train in the United States. Laura Bullion was a member of the Wild Bunch gang, Butch Cassie and Sundance Kid and other members of the Wild Bunch gang she hung around with are the ones that robbed the train, but she got arrested for it just like the rest of them when they were caught. She influenced rail travel for bad because prior to what she did, women could get on board and their their pocketbooks weren't subject to search. But after Laura Bullion, now people thought, oh, wow, women can rob trains too. We never thought about that. So here's what we're going to do. Now we're going to we're going to check your purses. It was the earliest form of TSA that I can think of.
0: Patricia, you mentioned that wartime, even as early as the Civil War, brought women into what were considered non-traditional jobs with the railroad. Yet it seems like it wasn't until relatively recent times that this really became commonplace. So why is that?
2: Uh, we have some great photographs from World War I and Two of women, uh, you know, welding and, you know, working in these very uh, physical environments. But what was interesting in um, in the 1950s, you know, post-World War II, there was a huge movement to say that women were somehow physically unable to do this work, which is interesting because women had been literally doing this work. So, you know, it was kind of a, a bold statement and a lot of women, you know, lost their jobs. They lost out on, you know, gaining that seniority to be able to keep their jobs. The other interesting thing we found doing this is that I think it was just after World War I, you know, one of the biggest problems uh, with uh, coming into railroad work for women, and especially those non-traditional roles like outside of an office environment or outside of the station environment, was the uh, apprenticeship type system that was in place. So Up until World War I, you know, if you wanted to go to work for the railroad, you would start at the bottom, like with a track gang, and you would work alongside other men who had been working for a long time with the railroad, and you would essentially apprentice up. There was no formal training on the railroad to do this work, right, other than the other other men you were around. So you would find, you know, a senior uh, individual to bring you up in that. So Often in railroad works, a lot of family work, right? So you have intergenerational uh, family members, you know, my uncle, my father, uh, this is my son, my nephew, et-, et cetera, who were working for the railroad. And, that, and that's because it was that type of learning opportunity. After World War I, the railroad started to, um, you know, 1916 was the peak of rail miles in the United States. Railroads had to kind of up their game as far as training goes. And so started to standardize training for these different roles, And that actually provided an entree for women because suddenly there was like a legislated way to go into railroad work. You didn't just have to know somebody or, you know, work alongside someone for 10, 15 years before you had this job. Suddenly you could go in, you could apply for something, you'd be trained to do that job, and then you could move up. That also helped women after World War I um, get into some of these roles. By 1960, women represented 30% of all people employed in the United States. 30 percent. I mean, that's not a lot. But then, uh, you know, if you if you go forward you know, into the 1970s, you know, suddenly women, women are like 60 percent of railroaders in the country. It just jumped forward by leaps and bounds.
0: So what else don't most of us know about women at the railroad?
2: A lot of people don't know that the 19th Amendment,
1: which is the amendment that gave women the right to vote, was crafted and drafted on a train. On a train trip from Wyoming to Chicago. A lot of people don't know that Kate Warren, who was the first female Pinkerton detective agent, uh, helped uncover what we know as the Baltimore plot and then accompanied President Lincoln on a train, secreting him out of the Pennsylvania area into Washington making sure that he was safe and she sat up with him he was slept, but she sat up with him all night making sure nothing happened to him on that train and the logo for the pinkerton's detective agency is an eye that's wide open and the motto underneath is the eye that never sleeps and that was based off kate warren on a train never sleeping so really Train travel has such prominence in
2: everything about women of the American West you know, the only other thing I wanted to definitely make sure we talk about is um, civil rights. A lot of the suffrage movement came out of women who were working uh, for abolition. You know, they're saying, you know what, wait a minute, if if all men are created equal and all men are deserving of human rights, then women should be as well. So the suffrage, women's suffrage movement was born out of that uh, initial abolition movement. But interestingly, when they were talking about women deserving the right to vote, I mean, it was only white women they were talking about. When we think about the the movement of women into the workforce and the movement of women and the gains that women made uh, throughout the early parts of the 20th century, it was really only white women, black women and women of color coming into the workforce and gaining that sort of respect and legitimacy as as women, but as just people, as workers, you know, really wasn't happening until the 1960s. For example, Union Pacific's first black female engineer uh, wasn't hired until 1974. We, you know, so you think about, you know, while this this arc and this road of women working on the railroad uh, certainly paved the way for women of color to enter into these positions, it wasn't until, you know, mid, mid-20th century and later that women of color actually stepped into that uh, realm as well.
0: So if we've piqued your curiosity on this intriguing subject and you want to learn more, I strongly recommend the book entitled Iron Women. It's written by Chris Entz, one of the very knowledgeable guests we've been talking with on this podcast. You can find the book on Amazon. Just search for Iron Women in the book section, or search by the author, Chris Entz, and that's spelled E-N-S-S. And if you live in the Council Bluffs, Omaha metro area or are planning a trip out this way, certainly you'll want to visit the Union Pacific Railroad Museum. Our other guest on the podcast today, Patricia Bounty, is curator of that museum, and her exhibits are designed to appeal to everybody, from kids to career railroaders and everyone in between. Take it from me personally, the Union Pacific Railroad Museum is very, very much worth the visit. Thanks for joining us today on Accidentally Historic.
1: The Accidentally Historic podcast is produced by the Historical Society of Pottawatomie County in Council Bluffs, Iowa. We're on the web at thehistoricalsociety.org and on Facebook at Council Bluffs Revealed. Mariel Wagner is our president. Kat Slaughter, our museum's director. The podcast is edited and narrated by Dr. Richard Warner. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Or find us at accidentallyhistoric.com. Local history. Some good, some bad, and some very strange. We'll look forward to sharing more of it with you next time on Accidentally Historic.